Michael Oslunk here with uh, Chris Preble. He's Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great, Michael. So uh, we are in the fall of 2017. NDAA just went through. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it did not include provisions for BRAC. Right. Uh, which is really unfortunate because the White House supported it and sort of the Pentagon. Right. Um, talk to us a little bit about BRAC in general. Sure. And where we are where we could be heading in, to, for, say, in 2018 in terms of BRAC. Sure. So BRAC, Base Realignment and Closure, this is the process that the Pentagon has used uh, to close um, uh, excess, unnecessary surplus military <coughs> bases. Um, it goes back to the late 1980s when Congress had effectively blocked all base closures in the late 60s and 70s. Um, so they created this legislation to get around that. Uh, five rounds of closures uh, took place. The last one uh, happened in 2005. Um, so it's been now 12 years uh, since 2011. So, so going back, five secretaries of defense have requested authorization to conduct another uh, BRAC round. Um, there is a sort of fairly widespread agreement among the academic community and think tank scholars and whatnot that um, the program has been successful in allowing the Pentagon to um, identify the most surplus base, you know, the, the bases that are least needed uh, and uh, allows for community input and things like that. Um, but uh, Congress has consistently resisted. We can talk a little bit about why that is. I did think that um, it was important and I hoped that uh, Secretary Mattis making the case to a predominantly Republican Congress would have greater success than his predecessors, uh, but so far he hasn't. Uh, they continued to resist. They, uh, they, uh, Chairman Thornberry on the House side refused to include BRAC legislation in his NDA mark. Um, Ranking Member Smith attempted to amend that legislation, which won um, a, a considerable number of votes, both among uh, committee members as well as on the floor, but not enough to add that back into the legislation. On the Senate side, um, uh, Chairman McCain and Ranking Member Reid also signaled that they were open to the idea of a BRAC, but it appears basically ran out of time. It wasn't included in their markup either, and it hasn't obviously made it into the conference report. So um, there is no, there will be no BRAC this year, uh, and we're looking to 2018 uh, or beyond. And the politics, of course, don't get any easier. Uh, most people believe that the best time to do this is is during uh, the first year of a, of a presidential administration. So <clears throat> we have the White House supporting a BRAC, and I remember they put out their statement of administrative principles supporting a BRAC. Uh, I believe that was in there as well for the NDAA. Well, you have the Pentagon for a long time, multiple secretaries of defense is uh, pushing for a BRAC. Right. Um, but it stalled in Congress. Right. Talk to us about why it stalled in Congress. Sure. There are two main arguments, um, and, and I think neither of them are particular. I think both of them can be can be sort of challenged or, or we can push back against them. But they're basically two arguments. The first argument is that um, the 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 military is likely to grow much larger, and therefore it would be unwise to constrain the military not knowing how much larger it's going to get. Um, Chairman Thornberry is probably the most emphatic on this point. Um, uh, you also hear it from people like Senator Inhofe, who's basically the second-ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. 
um, that we just don't know what our requirements are going to be in the future and it would be unwise at this particular time to reduce the number of bases. Uh, the problem with that argument is twofold. One, I don't think the military is likely to get much larger and certainly not as large as it was uh, during the height of the Afghan and Iraq wars in 2010, 11, 12, when the army was much, much larger than it is today. Um, but more to the point, um, even the most recent estimate by Secretary Mattis uh, in the Pentagon, the most recent estimate is even taking into account a much larger force structure than the one that we have today and that we are projected to have, they estimate that we still have 19% excess capacity. So even if it is true that the military was going to grow much larger, uh, it is simply not true that the military doesn't have excess capacity. And of course, the other point on this is that BRAC doesn't eliminate all excess capacity. It merely reduces excess capacity. Of course, we want the ability of the military to be able to flex and adapt if, if requirements change. Uh, but we're talking about going from, you know, perhaps 19% excess capacity to 15 or 16% excess capacity. There's still an enormous amount of leeway in uh, the military's overall infrastructure. So I think that argument just doesn't hold water. The second type of objection to base closures uh, involves the impact on local communities, the economic impact. And this is something that I've been studying for a number of years now. Uh, I have always been skeptical of the argument uh, at, at a more general level that military spending has enormous positive economic effects, that military spending is a Keynesian stimulus. Uh, that is true only at the margins and it is one of the least efficient types of Keynesian stimulus you can possibly use. Tax cuts and other spending increases, domestic spending increases, non-defense have a better uh, Keynesian effect, a stimulative effect. And of course, I have lots of problems with borrowing money from, from our kids and grandkids in order to pay for additional spending that's not needed. So, so I've always been skeptical of the argument that military spending is needed to sustain the economy and that cuts in military spending will have a devastating impact on the economy. There's no evidence of that. In fact, of course, we did have a drawdown in military spending from the high points of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and the U.S. economy did not suffer uh, as a result of those cuts. If anything, uh, it, uh, it recovered. Of course, it hasn't recovered as quickly as we would have liked coming out of the 2008 recession, but that slower than we would like recovery is not a function of military spending cuts in 2011, 12, and 13. The more important point, however, about um, the economic effects of base closures is that people are looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Uh, most military bases are, are converted to more productive uses by the communities uh, and some of this happens quite quickly. Uh, most, not all, but most. And so the project that I've been working on involves visiting a number of former military bases. Uh, this, including, this includes bases that were closed during uh, one of the five BRAC rounds. It also includes a number of bases that were closed in the 50s and 60s before we ever had a BRAC to understand how the, how the process was quite different. And it also looks at a handful of private companies that were mostly involved in providing, you know, private companies but were selling to the military. And so therefore, the drawdown of military spending could also have an effect on local communities. How did those communities adapt if their uh, local factory closed or relocated? Uh, and 
I tell these stories from all over the country, all here in the United States, and again, the bottom line is that most places uh, are able to, to redevelop them, and telling these stories is sort of fun and gratifying in itself because each of these places are interesting in their own way, um, but it also uh, allows me to sort of sort of step, take a step back, get out of the beltway, so to speak, and sort of see how this, these things are affecting uh, local communities. Uh, can you give us an example of one base closure successfully done? Sure. Um, so there are a number that I've looked at, but I think probably my, my personal favorite is uh, in Philadelphia. So uh, I, I went to graduate school in Philadelphia. I went to Temple uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, and um, I was living there when uh, the announcement came down that uh, Philadelphia Navy Shipyard would close. Um, it was a very, um, it was a really grim time uh, in Philadelphia generally. It was just not, you know, things were not going well. The economy was not doing well. And so this seemed to be just yet another body blow to a city that was really struggling, uh, uh, you know, again in the middle 1990s. Um, I, I left, uh, graduated, and, and went, you know, um, elsewhere to work and wasn't really paying close attention to what had actually happened. Uh, but what happened in Philadelphia was um, a redevelopment of the property in fairly short order. Uh, less than 10 years from the time that the closure was completed, um, the place that is now just called the Navy Yard, it's a, basically an office park, a business park, uh, has more people working there now than when the base closed, as you know, when it closed at the high, actually at sort of the, the near the high point of its of its employment in the late 1980s, um, the they continue to build ships in Philadelphia. These are commercial ships. These are so these are ships that used to transport goods uh, uh, between ports here in the United States. Uh, but it also has uh, just an incredible range of businesses and firms from major pharmaceutical companies to urban outfitters, for example, where they have now located their headquarters. Um, the other favorite part about the base and what's happened to it, um, from my perspective, is it sort of reveals how uh, military bases, when they stop being military bases, aren't closed. They're actually opened. They're opened to the community. When the Navy was at the Navy Yard, you couldn't go into the Navy Yard unless you had business with the Navy, unless you had, an, you know, a, a an ID card. I went there once when I was, in, uh, you know, serving in the Navy. Um, but generally speaking, you would drive down Broad Street and you would come rather abruptly to a, to a locked gate, and people would wave you away. Uh, you know, sometimes brandishing guns. Now Broad Street ends where it originally ended, which is on the river, um, and you have opened up to this city. Um, uh, roughly 1,200 acres of, of land that is incredibly valuable to the community, both as open space, but also as a business park. So um, to me, it's, it's very gratifying to go back there and see what's been done. Um, one, one other quick note, um, uh, for as long as people can remember, going back to the early 20th century, uh, one of the things that Philadelphia was known for was what was called um, basically the reserve fleet or where ships were kept uh, in a reserve inactive status often before they're uh, sent out to sea and sunk um, uh, and so you would go by the you know you would go by the Navy base and see a handful of ships usually you know maybe eight or ten or a dozen just sort of waiting to be to be cut up 
as it happens, the ship that I served on is currently anchored or tied up at a pier in Philadelphia. At least the last time I checked, uh, eventually it will uh, it will become uh, a reef for fishes. But uh, but but it's it there it is, and so it's sort of coming full circle for me to go back and see it there. So it sounds like a great example of success story. Um, are there any stories that are used by the opponents of BRAC to say, see, look, it's, it's not a useful strategy? Sure. Um, the case that I'm probably most familiar with there is uh, Loring Air Force Base in Limestone, Maine. Uh, mm-hmm. I grew up in Maine. That's where I'm from. My family still lives there. Um, when I was a kid and even as a teenager, we knew about limestone, sort of, we knew about Loring, sort of, um, you know, sort of a legend. It was one of the large uh, strategic air command bases right, uh, right on the Canadian border. It literally is just a hand, just a few miles from the Canadian border, uh, way up in northern Maine in Arista County. Um, when, uh, when BRAC came along, in fact, there's evidence to suggest that one of the reasons why Congress had wrote, written into the legislation uh, barring base closure was precisely by the Maine delegation to prevent Loring from being closed. Um, they were confident that uh, the surrounding community would be devastated by the closure of the base. Um, uh, for the first time in my life, I visited Loring a couple years ago. Um, again, I traveled all around the state of Maine in my, in my lifetime. My, again, my family still lives there. I know the state very well, but it's sort of a measure of just how remote this place actually is that I had never been there. It is, it is very, very far to the north. Um, and it is, and likely never will be, completely redeveloped. It is, uh, it is very remote. It is far away from anything in terms of basic infrastructure. Um, it is not a convenient location um, as a logistics hub, for example, which is one of the things that people thought it might be used for. Um, it is in a part of the state of Maine that is, uh, is and has been in a very long, slow, a downward trajectory, uh, mostly because the main product, the product in, in Aroostook County was potatoes, and people are eating less potatoes than they used to be, uh, starches and all those sorts of things, French fried, all the things that we like to eat that are bad for us. And so uh, because the local community was in this sort of long drawn down, drawn out period, um, it's been very, very hard for them, for them to recover. Um, I think we have to acknowledge these cases mm-hmm. and just be honest about it this is you know this is clearly a, a case that's going to be difficult uh, to to uh, sort of redevelop but my point is that we shouldn't focus on the worst case scenarios right. we should focus on and and actually to be honest we shouldn't either focus on the best case scenarios philadelphia isn't even the best case probably the presidio in san francisco is the best case but we shouldn't focus on the extremes. We should focus on the cases that are not famous, that are the cases where the redevelopment occurred and people have all but forgotten that it ever happened in the first place because um, they have just grown accustomed to having this land and these properties be available to the community uh, and not uh, uh, held off limits effectively by the military. So for the NDEA for next year, there's not going to be any BRAC. Mm-hmm. What's the likelihood that we can convince Congress uh, of their mistaken ways? Right. Um, with the support of the Pentagon, the support of the President. Obviously, you already said uh, General Mattis is mm-hmm. a strong proponent of this. Mm-hmm. That in 2019, that this is something that could occur. Well, I mean, I helped to organize a letter with a number of think tank scholars uh, here in D.C. Uh, earlier this year. And, and the 
the point being there is broad bipartisan support for this among the expert community. They recognize that if you compel the military to maintain infrastructure that it does not need, then you are by, by definition uh, forcing it to spend money unwi you know, unwisely. Um, and so I think there will continue to be pressure uh, from the budget on trying to uh, resolve this problem. Uh, Secretary Mattis estimates that ultimately that a single BRAC round will generate around $2 billion in savings. That's money that could go to other, you know, other things, other needs of the department. Um, I think that there will still be um, strong opponents, but also strong supporters. I think that uh, Con uh, Congressman Smith, Adam Smith from Washington State, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, is absolutely committed to this. He will continue to push this. I do think that um, some in the Senate, including Senator Reid and Senator McCain, as I noted, are committed to this. But I also think that it's really important for the administration from the top down uh, to make this uh, a, a priority in, two, in 2019. Uh, after all, 2000, yeah, 2018 for the 2019 fiscal year. After all, we do have, um, for the first time, maybe since George Washington, uh, a real estate de uh, developer in uh, the White House, and he understands presumably how properties are redeveloped and can be redeveloped and, and how keeping properties sort of, you know, underutilized doesn't help anybody ultimately. Um, but we also have in the Pentagon, in addition to Secretary Mattis, who is committed to this, a really, uh, a really very forceful and knowledgeable advocate, and Lucian Niemeyer, who is basically responsible in the Pentagon for, um, for for facilities. And Lucian has studied this. He worked on Capitol Hill for a number of years and knows this subject very, very well. And I expect him to be, uh, in addition to others within the administration, a real advocate for this. So, so I don't think we've heard the end of it. I don't think that uh, that uh, Secretary Mattis will give up on this. Uh, and so, uh, really, it's going to come back to Congress to try to convince them both of the need to do so and of the potential benefits that could flow to local communities uh, if they're allowed to use these properties. That's good to hear. I know you've written about this as well as a dozen other topics. Where can people find your writing? So uh, I work here at the Cato Institute. Our website, cato.org, has uh, my writings pertaining to defense closure and consolidation. Uh, in addition to blog posts, I've written a number of uh, somewhat longer articles. Uh, and then there, you know, my, the materials can be found there uh, fairly easily. Great. Thank you, Chris. Great. Thanks, Michael.